Eric was talking about community. Christ, in the second part of his, his teaching, has been on community and talked about community in the church. I'm going to take it to a little different situation of community. I'm going to talk about other forms of community. And the purpose of my sermon is to talk about forgiveness, because forgiveness is what restores broken community. I know you're all familiar with those famous people, Ole and Clarence, historical figures. You've heard about their terrible disagreement, kind of like the Hatfields, McCoys. And history tells us that Orly and, and Clarence once were really good friends, but something happened. We don't know what happened, but it caused them to be bitter enemies. And years and years ago, they lived across each other, and between them was a raging river that nobody could cross. But in their hatred, they would yell back and forth, Oli, I'm going to come over there and kick you, and I'm going to knock your block off and everything. Clarence would throw back hurls of anger. Oh, Clarence, you're no worthless, no good. I'm going to come over there and kick your by Norwegian tail. And so on and on it went. No restoration, fellowship broken. Then they built a bridge down the way. So Lena says to Oli, well, big talker, you're going to go over there and kick Clarence's button, are you? Oli says, yeah, you just watch me, Lena. So he leaves. Comes back a little bit later, kind of sheepish, his head hanging down. And she says, well, then, did you go over there and take care of Clarence? She says, no, Lena, I didn't. Well, why not? Lena, I didn't know how big he was. I got to, <laughs> I got to the bridge, and a sign said, Clarence, 13 feet, 6 inches. So that, that fellowship was never restored. On a serious note, we want to talk about community. What is community? Well, I, I are an English major, and community, common unity, community. It's something we have in common. But I think the basis of real community, and it doesn't have to be a big group, the basis of community is friendships, relationships based upon friendships, which really is based upon love. We Christians have this thing called a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's kind of a saying, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's true, but we kind of throw it around a little bit, and I don't think we really understand what that means. A personal relationship with God. He calls us friend. Remember I said relationship is based upon friendship? We know that Jesus loves us. For God so loved the world. God loves us. Jesus loves us. But he's our friend. In John 15, 15, it says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is our friend. We sing the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. God was a friend to Abraham. In James 22, 23, part of that verse says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We've heard that a lot. It goes on to say, And he was called a friend of God. Did you know that Moses was called the friend of God? In Exodus 33, 11, it says, Thus the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. 
Folks, that's revolutionary. That's unheard of. And we take it for granted, and we shouldn't. To be called, there is no God that anybody else worships that is considered a friend. Most gods are feared. They're capricious. I work over with my ministry over in the stands. Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Stan, Stan, Stan. And Russia, and Eastern Russia. And the, the, I'm not gonna badmouth Islam, but I want you to understand the darkness that they live in because their perception of Allah is a very capricious God that is determining whether they go to heaven or not based upon what they do and how they please him. He's not their friend. They don't have any concept of a loving, gracious, loving God. And we get to call, the word says he's our friend. So the foundation of community is friendship and love. Usually when we think of community, we think like a town, the community of so and so forth. And so it's easy for me to kind of understand that type of community because I grew up in a little community called Kindred, North Dakota. About 300 and some people Everybody knew everybody. We had a common background. Most of the people in Kindred were ethnic. They were Norwegian Lutherans. Methodists moved to town. Oh, man, there goes the town. <laughs> we all had lots in common. When they first moved there, they all spoke Norwegian. My parents didn't speak English till they started school. Norwegian was spoken in the home. That's true in Spanish communities. That's true in immigrant communities. It was community. Everybody knew everybody. That was kind of good news, bad news. The bad news is everybody knew everything that was going on. But I remember being a little boy one time coming home from school, probably seven or eight years old, and a windstorm came up, and I got scared. And this big tree branch had fallen. I mean, it was that big. So I climbed underneath that branch to protect myself. Within minutes, Mrs. Hertzgard, Gladys Hertzgard, comes running out, grabs me and takes me home, calls my mother, Isabel, called Izzy. Izzy, it's okay, John's here, I'm taking care of him. That's community. Moved to Fargo, North Dakota, the biggest city in the world, 45,000 people. <laughs> kind of lost the community. But Fargo was a tight community, but it's hard to be community with 40. You have things in common, but that's a part of community. Albuquerque, are we a community? We want to think so. We have community centers. We have community things. We do community things together. But it's hard to be community with 500,000, 800,000 people, whatever the thing is. So what is our community? I think it begins with family. We don't think of family as a community, but it really is. That's our first picture of community. It's a relationship that we share. It's a home that we share. We break bread together. We interact amongst each other. That's community. As we get a little bit older, parents, remember when your children got to a certain age and you went brain dead? <laughs> because their community became their friends. And young people, friends are so important. The community of friendship at school, some, maybe you're on an athletic team in the band, debate, whatever. You have a community and it draws you together. And you gotta know how important that community is. Because there's good community 
and there's not so good community. Fargo, North Dakota, my basketball team, there were 13 of us. On that team, no big deal. Everybody went to college. One went to the Air Force Academy. I went to law school. Everybody went to college. There's engineers, there's doctors, there's dentists, so on and so forth. My community said, where are you going to college, not are you going to college? Not that college is the perfect thing, but that was peer pressure, okay? Imagine being in a community in the hood where your community are all fatherless young men whose only hope in life is to sell as many drugs as they can and kill the people that get in their way. That's their community. So family is so important. And I spoke on Father's Day how critical it is that the family is being broken up. That community is being broken up. Friendship is important. When I went to college, I was a football player, went on a basketball scholarship, switched over to football. Teamwork, teammates are a real community. I joined a fraternity. That was a community. That was a negative community. Wonderful guys, but they did things that I shouldn't have done and I did with them. So that, in, that community influenced me. Workplaces, you're a community. Do you realize you probably spend more time, more waking hours at work than you do with your family during the week? You're there eight, nine hours a day. You come home, you do things, you're busy. That's your community. K-groups in this church become a community. This church is a community. Eric spoke about that last week. I'm not going to go into that. So if friendship and love creates community, what fractures, what destroys, what breaks community? And my point to you this morning is that it's unforgiveness. It's unforgiveness. I think I have a good example of unforgiveness as an attorney, I found statistics in Bernalillo County, the second judicial district court. There's 13 judicial district courts. District court is where the trials are held. If you lose the trial, you go to the Supreme Court, but they don't hear trials. That's where the witnesses are and everything. There were 40,000 cases filed in 2017 in the second judicial district court, just Albuquerque. 76% of those were civil cases, non-criminal. So that's 30,000 cases where people had to go to court, not because they were accused of a crime, they weren't being prosecuted. They were people who couldn't agree and were suing each other. How many of those were divorces? I couldn't find out. Then you think about how many cases didn't go to trial, didn't go to court, were settled out of court. Thousands and thousands more. And then stop for a second. What percentage of Albuquerque do you believe are born-again believers? Now, I don't want to sound arrogant like we're some special church, but I don't know. But let's be really pessimistic. Let's say there's only 40%, 20% of Albuquerque that's born-again, sold-out, walking-with-God believers. That's 6,000 Christians that went to court against each other. That's not community. Lawyers see the destruction in litigation, unresolved disputes. There may be wreck a judgment. A judge is going to say, you win, you lose. 
Well, that's a conclusion, but that's not restitution. That's not restoration. How do we develop restoration? Why are there so many lawsuits? Unforgiveness. And what causes lawsuits? I think, my personal opinion, is somebody's been hurt. Somebody did something to somebody, said, said, said something to somebody, breached a promise, broke, and they were hurt. And hurt, unresolved hurt, leads to anger. I want you to follow that train because hurt leads to anger. I think God gave that, interest, that thought to me. Um, Eric laughs about driving down academy and losing, your, you're losing the faith, being backslidden. Well, I was driving down academy heading towards Wyoming, and this guy comes through. He's speeding. He's weaving in and out, you know, trying to get one lane. He's just going crazy. He cuts right in front of me, and I have to brake. So I honk on the horn. Well, he gave me the sign of peace with only one finger. And then he pulls over. We're at a stop sign. He rolls down his window and starts yelling at me and calling me some names that I cannot repeat here. On and on and on. And you know what I thought? Why is he so angry? Who hurt him? Who hurt that man that he has to express his frustration in such anger? And I think if you really consider it and ponder it, hurt is the basis of so much anger. There's a lot of angry people out there. We have racial communities that are very, very angry. I am not defending Black Lives Matter. I'm not. But I'm saying there's a lot of people in that community, African-American community, that have been hurt. I'm not talking about police brutality. I'm, not, I'm just talking about the fact that there still is discrimination in this country. Yeah, Emancipation Proclamation, the constitutional amendment, so on and so forth, uh, integration of schools, what have you. There's still a lot of hurt people out there, and they're mad. Now, that's just an example of how people who were hurt, felt discriminated against, became angry. We have gender anger. We have men and women, especially some women, I'm not putting you on the spot, who just are angry at men because maybe they've been hurt. Maybe they have not been treated fairly. We have political anger. The American community is being torn apart by political anger. There are people, I know of a person in this congregation who left this congregation because that person believed that most people in this congregation voted for Trump. I don't know if that's true or not, none of my business, but she thought that and it made her so angry that she left this congregation. That's crazy, but there's some hurt down there. Families. I do estate planning, wills and trusts, used to do a little bit of everything, but primarily wills and trusts towards the end of my career. And for the first, I did it for 40 years. For the first 20 years, I've, I've done hundreds and thousands of trusts and wills. For the first 20 years, I maybe had one or two where a family was disinheriting a child. It was rare. It was rare. In the last 10 years, it's not so rare. There's unresolved hurt and anger 
that has never gotten past it and they are having to say, I can't give my son or my daughter anything because he has done this or she has done this. I've heard parents say, they've showed me letters. Dad, because what you did to me, you're no longer my father, don't ever call me your daughter again. There's some hurt there and there's anger, it's unresolved, okay? Why aren't these things resolved? Because we're not following the biblical examples of what God has given us. I believe when there's unforgiveness, it means there's sin involved. Some of you, myself included, have been hurt by another person, really hurt. Marriages, 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's hurt, that's anger. There is no such thing as an amicable divorce. It's anger, it's hurt. Families are broken. Trust is broken. Love was betrayed. Sin by a parent. Some of the things we heard about abusing children is just deplorable, it's unconscionable. But can you imagine the hurt and then the anger that results of that? And that's unresolved and it's unforgiven. Sin by an employer. I think of the tragic case of the Olympic physician who betrayed the trust of those Olympic girls, those young women, by abusing them and how he hurt them. And now they're angry. It's unresolved. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Hurt that's been unresolved. It's deep and it's caused tremendous stress. I don't have the expertise to talk about everything that's psychologically. Go to Gary Webb and figure it out with him, but I'm just talking about the fact that I believe that sin causes division and anger and hurt, okay? Let's start perhaps with the greatest sin, and that is between us and God. Because we have a relationship with God, and when we sin against him, that relationship is strained, it's fractured. I don't want to say broken because God never gives up on us, okay? But it's strained, and it hurts. We aim it against God. One of the things we don't realize, we may say, you know, I haven't really sinned against God. I mean, I've never blasphemed him. I can't think of anything I've done. Well, remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife? In Genesis 39:9, part of that thing, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. You know the story. He resisted and fled. But what he said to Potiphar's wife was part of the phrase, how can I do this great wickedness, committing adultery, and sin against Potiphar? No, and sin against God. To sin against each other is to sin against God. To break God's commandments is to sin against God. Goes way back in the Hebrew Bible. Moses had to judge people. But Paul addresses this problem, and I've spoken about this, I think, 15 years ago. There's a problem. In Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, it says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to trivial, try trivial cases? Do you not know that you're going to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have such a case that you lay them before those who have no standing in the church, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between the brothers, but brother goes against brother into law, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. In Genesis, Lot and Abram were disputing, their herdsmen were disputing over the land. There was not enough pasture. What are they going to do? And in Genesis 13, 7 through 9, it says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me. I don't want this to happen. And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're family. What did Abram do? Take whatever you want. In a sense, he was defrauded. He gave what was the best for the purpose of maintaining community. What's the reason for the problem? 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. He calls them children. This is Paul. He's talking about the, he's calling them children. You're not, you can't take solid meat. I got to give you milk because you're children. It goes on to say, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, a childish way? Immaturity is shown in, 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 in inability to get along, okay? Remember, this wasn't talking about disagreeing with the pastors or the elders. This is about division amongst the people within the body, which destroys the community. There's going to be disputes amongst believers. It's going to happen. We're going to disagree. So what do we do? Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given the answer. We have a guide. Attorneys are guided by primarily two things. The written law, called statutory law, which is the Constitution, the New Mexico statutes annotated, municipal laws, so on and so forth. That's the law, written down. Then there's what we call precedent. The court has interpreted that law. Now, this is what first-degree murder means. This is what second-degree manslaughter means. This is what breach of contract means, so on and so forth. So we have those guides. Libraries of books filled with legal precedent and guides. What do we have as Christians? What's our guide? What law do we go to? Someone sinned. Someone's been cheated. In law, we have plaintiff and defendant. In divorce, it's called... Petitioner and respondent. So I've used this expression before with you. We're gonna, I'm going to call it sinor and sinny. How, what's, a, what's an or, sinor? Well, think of blood donor. You're giving. Okay? A sinor is somebody who's sinned. A sinny who's somebody who's been sinned. Matthew 8, 15, at Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. There's steps to this process. 
The first step is you go to the person who sinned. Somebody's hurt you. Somebody's done something against you. Sin doesn't mean they robbed you. Sin doesn't mean they tried to kill you. It may be they hurt you, they slandered you, they said some things about you. They sinned against you. So the natural response is, okay, you come crawling back to me and we'll talk about it. You sinned against me, you come to me. You grovel and you make sure that you are really penitent and we'll talk about forgiveness. Well, that's not going to happen, usually. So God says, no, you go to them. Yeah, but, but, but they send, no, you go to them. And you talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, privately. You talk to them and say, we need to resolve this. You hurt me. You sinned against me. We need to talk this through. And if he listens, meaning he accepts it, and takes it in, not just audibly has the sound waves going through his ear boxes, he listens, then you've won a brother. But if he won't listen, and sometimes our pride and our fear don't allow us to listen, so you bring some people along, not as judges, but as to help that person understand because if it's just between me and another person, I'm, well, he's wrong, I'm right. Somebody else comes along, listens to us, and says, John, did you hear what he said? I was involved with Christian conciliation services. We would bring people in, and out of 100 cases, if we just brought them in to sit down and help them listen to each other, 85% of all disputes were resolved. Nothing filed. If he listens to you, if he listens to them, you want him more. But if he doesn't, take it to the church. I'm not going to go into disfellowship or excommunication, but it's so important that that community be restored and that sin be resolved that they're willing to take it to the church. But remember, it says, if they do not listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That means you never, ever talk to him again. No. What did Jesus do with Gentiles and tax collectors? Jesus, Matthew was a tax collector. He reached out to them. We treat them as unbelievers and we love them. We try and bring them in so that there can be restoration. The reconciliation process requires those steps. You've got to be willing to do it. Remember, if there's no confession or acknowledgement of wrong, acknowledgement of sin, there can't be any forgiveness and there can't be restoration. We have to admit that we've sinned, that we've made a mistake, that we've hurt somebody. How often do we forgive somebody? You know the answer. Matthew 21, 35, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and forgive him? Up to seven times, 70 times seven, which in the Hebrew vernacular means infinite. Okay, we've been sinned against. We are the sin -y. What about we're for the sin or? What do we do then? God's got a plan. He's got some guidelines. Matthew 5, 21, 26. You've heard that it was said, those of you old do not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. Didn't murder anybody, didn't rob anybody. He was angry with them, called him a fool, insulted him, whatever. That's sin. So, if you've done that, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you've sinned against him, 
You leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then to come offer, then come and offer your gift. Think about that. You're there worship, about to worship God. Offering doesn't just mean money. It does, can mean this at the temple, but also means an offering of worship. You're coming to worship and God says, no. If you've, got, if you've sinned against somebody, you've got to get that straightened out. God still loves you. He's not going to send you to hell because you come to, to church and you're mad at somebody or you've sinned against somebody. But he's saying to you, no, you and I aren't right, John, until you get right with your brother. Go to him. Get that resolved. And then bring your gift to me. Because remember, when we sin against our brother, we sin against God. So make it right with your brother. Because there's a broken fellowship when we aren't right with each other, and that, fellowship, that broken fellowship affects our fellowship with God. Why did Jesus come to earth? And I'll be a smart aleck for a while. He came, he had some really good speeches. You know, we got the Gettysburg Address, and we've got Martin Luther King's uh, I have a dream. Great speeches. Washington had some great speeches. Jesus had some really good speeches. It was a good speech. That Sermon on the Mount, that's a good one. That's, that was worth everything. Well, maybe he came to give us some teaching. Give us some ideas, some helpful hints. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Maybe he came to do miracles. Wow, he did some amazing. That walking on water, that was cool. Raising Lazarus from the dead, that's amazing. He came to do miracles. He came to die for our sins. He came so that we could be forgiven. He did all those other things, but his purpose was to come and die for our sins, be humbled and die for our sins. He didn't sin. He was not the sinor. He was the sinny. And he humbled himself and he came to us and died for our sins. And John, you're telling yourself that you can't forgive so-and-so because of your pride, because you're right and he's wrong? Who's right and wrong between us and Jesus? We were wrong, but he died. And forgiveness on the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ restored us because we were alienated from God. That first bite of the apple or the pear, whatever the fruit was, that separated us from God. That sin. And every one of our sins against each other or against God has separated us from God. And only the blood of Christ, the voluntary, humbling, laying down his life, Jesus said, you're not taking it from me, I'm laying it down, is what gave us restoration and returning to fellowship and community. I was at one of the conferences I was at. There was a, a phrase that said, live in grace, walk in love. I like that. I think I want to put that someplace in my house. Live in grace, walk in love. What's grace? We have been privileged at, from this pulpit to have Wayne Barber and Eric and lots of people talk about grace, living grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's when you have sinned against God, he still loves you. That fellowship is broken. Sometimes we're hurt. 
I'm going to share something with you. When my daughter died four years ago, I never got mad at God, but I thought he hurt me. I didn't feel like I was, Jesus was much of a friend. I had to work through that. And what began was by saying, Jesus, I confess that I'm really hurt. Why did you let that happen? I don't feel like much of a friend. And as I walked through that, as God walked me through that, he said, I'll always be your friend because I'll always love you. And I loved your daughter and she's with me now. And you don't understand, but trust me because friends trust each other. And so I trust God. My faith is in God. I don't understand, but my faith is in God. That beautiful picture that I saw of Barbara Bush being in heaven, kind of a cartoon, running to meet her daughter that had died at age three of leukemia. That's the joy of restoration that we'll feel, okay? Forgiveness requires restoration. You can't just say, it's okay, we're good, when you're really not. You need to restore that person into your community, into your family, into your friendship. When Peter denied Christ three times, the post-resurrection Jesus met Peter. And we know the story. Do you love me? You know I do, Lord, feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I do, Lord, feed my lambs. You love me? You know I do, Lord, feed my sheep. We got it figured out that Peter denied him three times, so he ex accepted God's forgiveness, Jesus' forgiveness, by telling him he loved him. The love of the friendship was restored. But there was something else that sometimes we miss. Why did he say, feed my sheep? Jesus was going to be leaving and was going to be leaving his sheep, us, alone. So he gave Peter, not as pope, don't go there, but he gave Peter the responsibility to be a shepherd. He trusted him to shepherd Jesus' flock. That's restoration. That's restoration. You don't bury a grudge. You don't think less of that friend or that parent or that person, whatever. You restore them. Sometimes we hurt people and we don't know it. Sometimes we'll say something and we don't stop to think of the effect that that might be. Sometimes we gossip, and gossip is so wonderful because you know something that somebody else doesn't know and you want to tell them. I think gossip is murder of somebody's reputation. You're destroying their reputation. Maybe you didn't mean to hurt them. Maybe, I know my wife and I have been times I've said to her, is there something wrong, honey? Are you okay? She said, no, I'm fine. Then I know something's wrong. Finally, she'll say, well, you said this or didn't say this. You did this or didn't say that. And sometimes I'll say, I was upset, I'm sorry. Or sometimes I'll go, that's a guy thing. I didn't even know. But I still hurt her. So I got to say, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Because I, is there anything worse, if those of you who are married or have been married, to have a fight? I'm saying a fight with your wife. There's that terrible knot in your gut. You feel terrible. And what does it feel like when you kiss and make up? It's the best feeling in the world because you've been restored. Right now, Susie is in Germany for a week before I, I'm flying out this Saturday. Then I'm going to Moldova and Ukraine and Belarus and places I don't even know where they are. 
And she is doing her Corey presentation in Germany. Restoration. Forgiveness. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to finish up with the minutes we have and help us pray through some forgiveness issues. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Stay where you're at. Don't get up. And let's pray together through some of these issues, and I'll go through them with you, okay? Heavenly Father, again, we come into your throne room. And we're asking you, God, first of all, what if we've sinned against you and we don't know it? What if we have said something or not said something or done something that's hurt you? And I know you forgive us, Father, but I would like to get that cleaned up. I want to make sure, God, that we are okay with you. So, Father, as we bow our heads, I'm just asking that your Holy Spirit would speak to us quietly and tell us, yeah, John, there is something I need to talk to you about. Father, let us hear from you. Show us our sin that we can resolve it and be forgiven and be back in community with you. Father, we also may have sinned against somebody, and if we're aware of it or not aware of it, Father, maybe we've kind of buried it. Maybe it's been long enough where we've just said, well, I don't need to take care of that. That's, it's forgotten. Those sins, Father, still may be causing hurt and separation. So, Father, whether it's to a family member Maybe there's a member of our family, a brother, a sister, an uncle, a cousin that we don't even talk to anymore. That's not family, God. That's not community. Would you reveal to us those sins that we may have committed against family? Father, for those of us who have children, and of course we've all had parents, I pray, Father, that you would allow us to be right with our parents, even if they're in heaven. Maybe there's something we wish we would have said or wish we would have done, and by confessing to you, Father, it's okay. It's taken care of. We can't come to our mom and dad and say, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm sorry, Dad, but we can come to you. Maybe it's a child that we wish we would have said something to, and now they're gone. Maybe we've done something wrong. So between parents and family and children and parents, maybe there's children here, young people who've said things and done things that have disrespected their parents, and their parents don't even know it. It's that deep secret that they're holding, and it's not good. That secret is eating up in us. Father, reveal that to us. Father, we also ask for clarity of showing us our sins against friends. Maybe we said something behind their back. Maybe our friends at work. Maybe friends in this church. Whatever we've done, Father, 
Don't let the enemy tell us that it's not forgivable because you forgive us all our sins and you cleanse us from unrighteousness. As the psalmist says, Father, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. For God, we want to be restored to you always. Your open, loving forgiveness, your friendship and your love is without bounds. We just want to open up to that, Father, and accept that friendship. So, Father, I pray that this week that you would allow us, help us to go to anybody that we've sinned against. And maybe even go to those people who sinned against us. Let there be restoration by seeking forgiveness. Confession, forgiveness, restoration. Those are from you, Father. That's not from the world. Satan seeks to divide us. You want to restore us. So we ask you to restore us as you've restored us with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for being our friend. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for forgiving us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...